Today we're looking at Daniel chapter 5 as we continue our study of the book of Daniel. And as you're turning there, I want to mention a couple of things about the text before us. We're uh, looking at this passage that's concerning Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so-called king of Babylon. Who was this so-called king Belshazzar? Well, up until 1854, no one knew of Belshazzar. There were no historical documents that mentioned Belshazzar. Uh, the last two kings of Babylon from history and from documents and scrolls and different archaeological finds in the past, we know that the last two kings of Babylon were our friend Nebuchadnezzar, whom we uh, studied last week, and his son Nabonidus. And then we have here in this passage a fellow named King Belshazzar. Well, who is he? 1854, archaeologists discovered ancient cylinders that mentioned Nabonidus and his son, Belshazzar. Uh, before that time, there were actually some commentators who said that Belshazzar was just a, a figment of the writer's imagination. He was some fictional character, and this was all made up, or just a story that was made up. But then we had this discovery in 1854. Now, the next problem that we had with Belshazzar is that the Bible refers to him as a king, but he was not, he was not actually uh, a king of Babylon. But in the 20th century, it was discovered that his father, Nabonidus, who was kind of an odd character, he spent 10 years living away from Babylon in Arabia, and he had left his son, Belshazzar, in charge of Babylon. And that is why in the text today you're going to see Belshazzar offer Daniel the third position in the kingdom. You remember in Exodus where Pharaoh offers Joseph second position in the kingdom. Well, Belshazzar is the second in position, so he offers the third position. So he was there reigning in Babylon in the place of his father Nabonidus who was living in Arabia at the time. Now many people are giddy with excitement to point out the so-called uh, errors in the Bible. But as uh, James Montgomery Boyce pointed out in his commentary on Daniel, he says, as time goes by, the Bible is not seen to be less reliable, but more reliable. We can put our trust in God's Word. We'll also encounter a couple of interesting statements that we still use today. Uh, the handwriting's on the wall and your days are numbered. These uh, expressions uh, that we use even today are, as few, few people really know this, but they are from the English translation of this particular passage that we're reading today. And there are many words and expressions that come to us from the Bible that we use in, in, everyday, uh, in everyday conversation, but they've long been, uh, it's long been forgotten that they have uh, biblical origins. I think it's great that God's Word has influenced our culture in this way. God's Word is powerful. It shapes us even though we may not even recognize it. And that's why it's important to continue to expose ourselves to God's Word, the Bible. You may not always get the warm fuzzies when you read God's Word, but that doesn't mean it's not shaping and influencing your life. With these things in mind, let us come to God's holy Word in Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple 
in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color, his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father... Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let me just pause for a moment and point out the fact that he keeps referring to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. He would have been his grandfather and that wasn't unheard of to, to call him father, even though it's his grandfather. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven 
and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this writing, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. A little encouragement can go a long way. One morning, a man opened the door of his home to get the newspaper and was, was surprised to see a strange little dog with his newspaper in his mouth. And he was delighted with this unexpected delivery service, so he gave the dog uh, some treats. The following morning, the man was horrified to see the same dog sitting in front of his door, wagging his tail, surrounded by eight newspapers. He spent the rest of that morning returning the papers to their owners. A little encouragement goes a long way, and we all need encouragement in the difficult times in which we live. And I believe the book of Daniel is meant to be an encouragement to the people of God. These narratives in the first six chapters of the beginning of Daniel and the prophecies in the latter six chapters of the, Daniel, uh, of the, of the book of Daniel are for our encouragement. Uh, they're for other things as well, but for our encouragement for sure. And today, we're going to get encouragement uh, from what would seem an unlikely place, the judgment of God. We don't often think of the sobering fact of God's judgment as encouraging, but it is. The encouragement is this. This world in which we live is full of blasphemy, uh, is full of evil, hatred of God, it's full of injustice, it's full of pride, it's full of idolatry, but God will not allow these things to go on forever. He will judge it, and one day he will make it all right, as we read about, particularly in Revelation chapter 21, in the new heavens and the new earth. That's an encouragement to us. What we're encountering now, the suffering, the difficulties, the persecution, it will not go on forever. He is going to make things right, and he does so by bringing judgment on the evildoer. Those who suffer most for their faith appreciate this doctrine the most. They're most encouraged by it. Now, we live in a relatively comfortable, uh, we live relatively comfortable and free lives at the moment. We're free to worship here uh, without being molested by anyone. But we can see that our religious freedom is not what it once was, uh, and the trend in our culture is not positive for Christians. And we can look out in other parts of the world and see that Christians in places like Syria, they need to hear these, these teachings from the book of Daniel and would be encouraged by them, I am sure. 
in, on September 5th, uh, an Al-Qaeda uh, rebel alliance overran a government roadblock and attacked a, the historic Christian town of Ma'alula, killing at least 10 and forcing the residents to flee. These rebels have also targeted Christian communities in the north and elsewhere, insisting that Christians convert to Islam and they destroy churches and residences of Christians. On uh, the following Monday after these things happened, someone asked a U.S. government official responsible for speaking on behalf of these oppressed religious minorities about the crisis, and she declined to comment. U.S. Ambassador for International Religious Freedom Susan Johnson Cook, who was visiting New York, spoke at length to representatives of non-governmental organizations at the United Nations U.S. Mission on Monday, on this Monday following these attacks. In the course of discussion, one representative asked, what is the U.S. doing to protect minority religious groups in Syria, and how is this being factored into potential U.S. military operations? And she declined to comment. Syria is very much in the news right now, she says, and right now we're not free to comment on what's happening in Syria. Well, the USA may not be willing or able to help God's people in Syria, but God is well capable of helping his people in Syria. And he will help his people, not only in Syria, but in all the earth. This brings us to the passage today. God is going to bring judgment, and remembering God's judgment encourages us in our struggle. Belshazzar had a big drunken party with a thousand of his lords. That's a big party. And he took some of the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem when he conquered Jerusalem, and he used them to drink the wine that he was serving at the party. He took these sacred things that were in the temple in Jerusalem, and he was using them uh, not to get closer to the true and living God, which was their purpose in the temple. But he used them for drunkenness and ultimately to praise these false gods, gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Having those vessels from the temple in Jerusalem was a way of saying, my God is greater than your God. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the temple, he took those vessels and then he put them in the temple of his gods so that they could serve his gods there. And it's a, it's a way of saying, you know, we're, we're better than you. We're stronger than you, and our gods are better than your gods. Well, Belshazzar is taking it a step further and saying, your god is not only weak, but he's nothing. He, it's meaningless. These vessels are no more meaningful than a wine glass. It was a cheap shot against God and his people. Well, we can relate to that. There's lots of cheap shots against Christians these days. Well, Belshazzar was guilty of pride, profaning the things of God, blasphemy, idolatry. And then this hand appears and writes on the wall. And it tells us in verse 6 that the king's color changed. And I'm sure it was not a, a positive change. I kind of figured the blood drained out of his face. He was, his face was probably red with drunkenness, and then he went white with fear. His thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. What a comical scene for this so-called powerful king. So he calls in his wise men, and they can't help him with the interpretation of the writing. They're helpless. So Daniel, on the recommendation of the queen mother, 
is brought in because she remembered him from his days. This is a good amount of time after what we just read about in Nebuchadnezzar's day. Daniel's probably in his 80s at this point. Well, Daniel does interpret the handwriting on the wall, and Daniel tells him God has numbered the days of his kingdom. He has weighed him in the balance and found this king lacking, and therefore his kingdom is going to be lost to the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what happened, and it happened rather immediately. The judgment came that very evening. He was killed, and the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall. The question we need to ask ourselves today is, do we see the handwriting on the wall? And we may or may not be facing immediate judgment, but what is true of Belshazzar is true of every one of us and everyone in the world, for that matter. Each of our days is numbered. We have a number of days, and when that number's up, it's over. The Bible tells us that this is true. Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows each of our days, and he has numbered them, just like Belshazzar's days were numbered. He also said that there, uh, you, will be, you, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. He was judged. And yes, there will be a day of judgment where everyone will give account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 and many other passages, Revelation 20 that we just read, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's a very sobering thought. But there is good news and we read it in our uh, assurance of pardon, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In that final day, Christ will return, and we will all be called before him. The sea will give up its dead. Those who have passed away will be there. Everyone, a sea of humanity, before this throne of judgment. And the books will be opened and everything will be known and brought to light, every thought, every word, every deed. It's a very scary, scary thought. And it's, and it's every deed, whether it's good or evil, Paul tells us in Corinthians. But in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Because of what Christ came and did in his life and in his death, we can actually say, Lord... Come, come quickly. We are looking forward to the day when you come and uh, return and bring judgment and usher in the new heavens and the new earth because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because when Christ did, especially on the cross, was that he took the judgment for you. You're guilty. You have sinned against a holy God. You have done the the same things that that Belshazzar is guilty of. We've, we've all worshipped other gods. We've all bowed down to idols. Maybe not idols of wood and stone, but as we've discussed in the past, idols of the heart. Things that we uh, uh, put in a more important position in our lives than God. That's idolatry. But Christ came, and as a vicarious 
sacrifice, a sacrifice in our place, suffered on the cross, and on that cross, he endured judgment. He was found to be sin. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. And, that, and he endured the wrath of God for sin, judgment being poured out, uh, the guilt uh, being, being uh, punished in Christ's body on the cross and in his soul on the cross. Said it before, yes, the physical suffering was intense, but what, when he suffered in his soul, what he suffered in his soul was more intense, it's beyond anything that we could even imagine. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, he is being forsaken by God. God no longer looks upon him uh, with that love that exists within the fellowship of the Trinity, the eternal love of God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He sees Christ as sin, and the Holy God pours his judgment out upon him. He did that so that we would not have to endure that. He is a provision for our salvation. And that's how he does it. And it's a, a great testimony to the great love of God. A lot of people say, oh, I don't want to believe in a God of wrath, a God of judgment. Uh, I, can't, I can't believe in that. But when you take away a God who has this passion against sin, it softens his, his other uh, attributes, especially his attribute of love. You think about that. How do you feel when someone you love is ravaged by sin, by unwise actions or wrong relationship? Do we just respond with benign tolerance uh, like we might uh, respond if it was a stranger? No. We get angry. We get upset. We try to do something about it. And that's what God did when Christ died on the cross. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Becky Pippert says in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Listen to that again. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. If you really hate someone, ultimately you just don't care. You don't care at all about them. Well, God cares. He cares about sin. He cares about you. And he's done something wonderful so that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This day of judgment will, will uh, consist of not only the evil being condemned, but rewards handed out. 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the grace God, of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If we are in Christ Jesus, there should be evidence of that. There should be good deeds. By your fruit, you will know them, Jesus said. And this is talking about the day of judgment, when 
Every, knee, uh, every deed will be seen. Every thought, every word said. And if, the, uh, if God is your God, if, if you are trusting in Christ for salvation, you won't be condemned, but your works will be weighed in the balance. And there will be rewards for the good things. And the other things will, will disappear and be burned up. You won't be condemned, but you'll be saved. But only like someone who just escapes a burning building. But you must be in Christ. You must have Christ uh, as your Savior in order to enjoy that great privilege. Well, this doctrine of God's judgment uh, helps us, encourages us in the Christian life. Yes, hey, there's rewards to be had. Uh, also, uh, we, we need to live for God. We need to be sober. We need to uh, be on the lookout, be aware of what's going on, and be circumspect in our lives, and to live lives holy and pleasing to God. And we must forgive. You know, you really can forgive someone when you realize that, hey, vengeance is the Lord's. He's going to repay one day. I don't have to do it myself. God will take care of that. And God may be giving that person time to repent. And He is. The Bible tells us so. And it also helps us say, look, there are people who are going to hell. There are people who are facing this judgment without Christ, and we need to tell them about the way uh, of salvation. We need to go out and share with them that there is a day when everyone will be, will be called to account, and we all need to be prepared for that day. So remembering God's judgment encourages us in the midst of our struggle, encourages us to holy living, encourages us to forgiveness, encourages us to evangelism, and so much more. Remembering God's wisdom, the second, second point, and briefly, just two things here. Remembering God's wisdom encourages us in our struggle. Not only do we see God's judgment here, but we see God's wisdom shining through. Uh, Belshazzar calls all these uh, magicians and astrologers to help him, people with the wisdom of the world, and they don't have a clue about these eternal things, these ultimate things, these things that pertain to life and death. The world's wisdom is no good here. And he has to call in Daniel. And that's true of us as well. You know, the world is espousing its wisdom and telling us what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe. It's attacking Christian faith and Christian belief and what the Bible tells us. And we're tempted to, to, to go along with the world's wisdom. But with these ultimate things, these eternal things, these very important things, matters of judgment and death and hell and eternity and the new heavens and new earth... Worldly wisdom can't help you there. You need to turn to God's wisdom, to God's word, and let that be your guide. And then secondly, uh, God in his wisdom has given us history. Uh, Daniel tells Belshazzar, look, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, we, we studied it last week, because he was so proud, he got knocked down, and he lived like a beast for a period of time until he acknowledged that God was the great king who owned everything. He was the, the ruler over all things. And until he uh, recognized that, he was like a beast. And Daniel says, Belshazzar, you did not, you knew all this, and yet you have lifted yourself up against God, you've become proud, and now God's going to knock you down. God has given us this to learn from it. He's given us history, not just this, but all of history, to learn from it. He says so in 1 Corinthians 10. He's talking about the exodus and the struggles the, the children of Israel had in the wilderness. And he says, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to, to the test as some of them did. Nor grumble. Uh, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We need to learn from history. We need to learn from Belshazzar's example. We need to learn uh, from all of the, the Bible's teaching and the wisdom that we can gain there. If we're not, we're being foolish. The writer of Hebrews tells these people who are about to abandon the faith, look, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels provided to be proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You he's saying, look, angels have appeared to people, they've given God's word, and when they ignored that, they did to their peril. And they were punished for it. They were judged for it. We have been given this great salvation through Christ. And how shall we escape? We're not going to escape. We're not going to escape God's judgment if we neglect this free salvation that he's provided for us. So learn from history. Learn from it. Understand it. And act accordingly. Because as the writer of Hebrews says, he, he will appear once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him that's an encouragement to us that he's going to appear and he's going to save his people who are waiting for him in the Westminster Confession of Faith I've provided this little final paragraph of the confession for you on the sermon outline it tells us the, the, the uses for this doctrine of God's judgment and it tells us as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity that's what we're talking about to be encouraged in our, in our struggle so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security. Oh, you know, he's not coming back. I'm okay. And to be always watchful, because they know it not at what hour the Lord will come, and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Are we prepared to say, and do we say, and can we say it with gusto, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Are we ready for that day when Christ will appear, the books will be opened, and judgment will happen? If we're not in Christ Jesus, then we're not ready. But if we are, then yes, as we struggle through this life, this life of evil and injustice, we long for that day when Christ will make all things right, and he will. So we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray together.